Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 73. We just read it and we're going to be there in our time together. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor, one of our elders here at the Austin Stone. And we're actually starting um, a brand new three-week series today. A three-week series that I've been so excited about to teach you, to walk through together. I've been thinking about it for some time because the, the name of the, of the series is A Spiritual Life in a Secular Age. A Spiritual Life in a Secular Age. And I've been thinking about this series for some time because we live in a uniquely and distinctly secular age. And, and what I mean by secular age is this, is that not believing in God comes easier to us and seems more natural to us than believing in him. That in a secular age, faith seems to be the leap. Faith seems to be the thing that seems almost impossible to believe. Now, I'm not saying by secular age that no one believes in God anymore. Rather, what I'm saying is increasingly in our culture, our fundamental shared assumption is that the only thing you and I can be truly sure of is the material world as understood through science and technology. That, that, that's our fundamental assumption. All of us go, well, that is for sure. And while we may be open to some idea of spirituality in this realm, so open to the idea that this could be spiritual, oftentimes the spiritual aspect of reality to us can feel far-fetched and honestly even feel like wishful thinking when compared to the alternative of not believing. And this has been a powerful shift in Europe and in North America over the last couple hundred of years. I'm reading a book called A Secular Age. It's by a Catholic Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. And what he's doing in this book, A Secular Age, he's tracing out and he's answering the question, how do we go from a society in the West where in the 1500s it was very easy for people to believe in God? He's not saying they had genuine faith or loved him. He's just saying the conditions were such where people generally felt, even thinking people felt, intellectual people felt, oh, of course, there's a God. He's like, how do we go from there all the way to now where more and more so we find it difficult to accept that? Now it's easy to not believe in God. And his whole point is, is that it's not nearly as simple. If you're thinking, well, the reason that is is because they didn't have enough information. We have more information. That's why we find it more difficult. His whole point of the book is saying it's much more profound than that. There's a lot lot of things going on in our culture and in the West in particular that has moved us in that direction. But you can see clearly we're there. I mean, just recently the Pew Research uh, Study on Religion asked Americans about the religious beliefs. And the astonishing thing from the study was that 23% of people checked none. Checked none. And just in the 1980s, that was less than 10%. And there's been this dramatic increase in people who don't feel, and and all of us feel it too. It feels increasingly more difficult to associate ourselves with any sort of strong belief and strong affiliation with any stream of religion. Why? We live in a secular age. Now let me be very clear. I'm not saying we live in a more sinful age. That's not what I'm saying. History attests to us that you can have a very formal religious belief and believe in certain creeds and sin in very great ways. The only point I'm making, and this book has been showing to me, is how different it is for us that accepting a spiritual reality is increasingly laughable to us. 
It feels like it's made for fairy tales and for those who don't think through things deeply. And so here's my goal the next three weeks is I want us to look together as what are those obstacles in a secular age that attempt to dissuade us from faith? And and these are obstacles that every human being has always faced. Our unique time is dressing them up in a unique way, but they're age-old problems. And these things affect you whether you are a devout Christian or you are a skeptic. Wherever you fall on the spectrum of belief, what you find is things like doubt, guilt, suffering. These are these experiences we all go through that prompt unbelief, that prompt us to doubt and not trust God. And the way we're gonna address all these issues is actually through the Psalms. I mean, throughout the history of God's people, there may not be a more referenced, a more read, a more treasured book in all of the Bible than the Psalms. The reason for that is not because the Psalms are more effective or more true than any other part of the Bible. There is a really unique genre of God's word. See, the Psalms showcase that human beings, and we know this from experience, but the the Psalms showcase for us that God made humans to be much more than just thinking creatures. That we're made to be these integrated persons whose experiences and feelings and thoughts and will and dreams and desires all congeal together to make us who we are in our worship of God. The Psalms showcase this for us. And the Psalms are the saints who have gone before us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit showing you and me how to pray, how to sing, how to think, how to seek God in the midst of every different circumstance this life presents to us. And one of the most unique things about the Psalms is they show us how to do two things simultaneously. They show us how to be totally raw and honest about who we are, and at the same time, aiming ourselves towards God and being hopeful in him and pursuing his virtue. Because most of us in this room do one of those two things well. Like some of us are really good at being raw and authentic and vulnerable about who we are and how we're struggling and how we're hurting and where we doubt. But then we tend towards cynicism and despair and we begin to relish authenticity more than actually changing to conform to God. While others of us, we're really good at hoping in God and really good at pursuing God and and working to change our lives. We have Bible verses stitched on everything we own, like we're legit. And yet, those of us struggle to actually be honest and raw about how much we're hurting, how much we're struggling, how deeply we failed we tend to go to one of those two places and the Psalms show us this third way of how do you pray in honest ways about who you are? And how do you pray in honest ways about who God is? Because if you only do one or the other, on this side, if you're raw and vulnerable but you never change, you may feel close to God but over time, God begins to look a lot more like you than than himself. Now on the other side, you may appear to look more like God and yet your heart is very far from him and love is very rare. And the Psalms go, no, pray honestly about who you are. Pray honestly about who God is and then beg him to reconcile the two. The Psalms show us the way, that's why they're so valuable. And today we're gonna look at Psalm 73 and the writer of Psalm 73 is Asaph. Just side note, not every Psalm was written by David. And what he's gonna show us 
It's gonna show you how do you pray and how do you deal with your doubts? How do you pray and how do you deal with your doubts? And I want you to hear something really clearly. God does not want you to avoid dealing with your doubts, nor does he want you to just stay in them. He doesn't want you to avoid your doubt, nor does he want you to be content with doubt. And Asaph's gonna be this saint for us who goes before us and says, I hit rock bottom and I was this close from leaving God. And yet somehow God was able to take that season and make me even stronger in my faith in God. Of all the things that we're gonna learn today, here's the one sentence I want you to walk away with. If you forget everything I say, remember this statement when it comes to your doubt, that the way out of doubt is worship. That the way out of the pit of doubt is traversing up the stairs of worship. Let's read together Psalm 73, one through three. In these first three verses, here's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see the nature of doubting God. What's the nature of doubting God? Verses one through three. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. First three verses, he shows us the essence of doubt. So the psalm begins, verse one, what does it say? Verse one is his theological statement of belief. His affirmation of faith, if you will. He says, I know that God exists and I know that he's good and I know he can be trusted. But then verse two says, but my heart does not believe that. Verse one is, my mind says, God is good, he can be trusted. My heart says, no, he can't. No, he can't. He says, my feet had nearly stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. What he's communicating is, I didn't just have a bad day. I didn't just have a moment of fleeting doubt. He's saying, I was done with faith. I was done. I wanted nothing more to do with God. I was done. And why was he done? I mean, this is, he's actually a priest. We learned that from First Chronicles. He's a priest. And he actually wrote 12 Psalms in the book of the Psalms to talk to us about how to follow God. How does this great man of faith go from faith to doubt, to almost leaving the faith? And you see it in verse three. It was the prosperity and the flourishing of the faithless. In Asaph's mind, He's looking at his life and he's seeing people with no regard for God, they don't care about God, and yet they are receiving all the blessing he thinks that should be received by those who are faithful. What he sees contradicts what God has said, it's what he feels. And that is the essence and the nature of where doubt springs from. Doubt springs when you have an experience that contradicts what the Bible has said. Doubt happens when you see clearly, God said this, and yet my experience in my life tells me, no, he's not. So I read, God is good to Israel, and yet I see evil. I read, God provides for me, and I see an empty bank account and no future in sight. I read, God protects me, and I see suffering 
everywhere in my life. Doubt begins to happen when what the Bible says seems to contradict your experience. And one of the things in this text in particular that Asaph is drawing out for us, that sometimes the, the, the disconnect that we see in the world that challenges our faith most is, are the lives of those who don't believe in Jesus. He says, it's the lives of those who don't believe in Jesus. When I look at them, they challenge things God has said. And it challenges us in two different ways. One is just like Asaph, and the other is similar yet distinct. Let me explain. See, some of you, just like Asaph, you look at the flourishing and the joy and the prosperity of those who do not believe in Christ. And it makes you wonder if God even cares about you. Because you look at them and you say, they get everything and I'm being faithful and I'm getting nothing. He looks at their lives of those who rebel most brazenly against God. And what does he see? He sees they they get children, they get a spouse, they get influence, they get power, They get money, they get everything that I thought God was supposed to give me. When you read the Psalms, this is a consistent refrain for the psalmist. They constantly are asking God, why don't you give those things to your people? They're saying, God, I look at those who are faithful to you and I see barren wombs. I see loneliness, I see suffering. I see loss. And the psalmist goes, I don't get it. I don't get it. God, you said you're my father who cares for me and is good to his people who trust in him. That's not what I see. That's not what I see. God, you made the promise. Why don't you care? Why don't you come through? And so here's what happens in your heart. You may not even voice these things, but what happens in your heart is you begin to say, he must not be good. He must not care. Because we think, even if you don't have kids, we think, I would never let my kids ever think that I didn't love them. I would never let my kids think that I'm not going to protect and provide for them. I would reassure them in some very tangible way. And yet God doesn't do that for me. And so then Asaph and most, a lot of us, our conclusion becomes that he must not be good because he is fine and content with the injustice of good things happening to bad people. Of good things coming to people who could care less about him. This is what he says in Psalm, in verse 12 through 13. He says, behold, listen to the anguish of this. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, you felt this way before. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I have been faithful and nothing's what I got. They could care less about you, God, and you don't seem to care at all about me. Some of you feel that most of it's probably hidden and sometimes not even voiced but you get that sense of why do they get what I want? And for some of you, that makes you genuinely doubt if God is good, if he can be trusted. But for others of you, for others of you, that's not what causes you to doubt God. 
that aspect of the lives of those who don't know Jesus is not what causes you to doubt God. It's actually the inverse. See, others of us, we look at the lives of those we love who don't believe in Jesus, and we hear words like wicked, we hear words like sinful, and we look at our friends and our family members, we go, that's, that's not what I see. Like we hear Asaph call them arrogant and prideful, and we look at them and we're like, I, I don't see that. I see kind, respectful, loving people. And we begin to think, that feels like a tyrant's claim. That feels like a blanket pronouncement over an entire group of people Why doesn't God take into account the individual life of each person? They're all different. Surely this title of wicked is an exaggeration. Surely the expectation of judgment is overstated. And we think if it's not overstated, and that's genuinely what the Bible says about this person that I love, is God good? Is the God of this Bible trustworthy? Because we think, I can't imagine bringing wrath onto somebody just because they aren't perfect, just because they believe differently than me. It makes no sense. It feels like an overreaction. And so what begins to happen, we begin to doubt God and say, he must not be good or even real if he's content with an injustice of having bad things happen to people that I think are good, where is God? And you'll probably find yourself in both places throughout your life. You'll find yourself doubting God because people get things you want and you know they're not faithful to God. And you'll find yourself doubting God because look at people you love who don't know Jesus, you think that what they're saying about them is an overstatement. And and I, I know for me, that the closest I have been from walking away from the faith completely was because I could not understand or get over how God could say about my friends who I love who didn't know Jesus were condemned. I couldn't get over it. See, this topic of doubt hits home for me. I, I don't know why, but since I became a believer, I have been constantly assaulted with these thoughts that wonder, is God good? And most of the time, the thoughts that I have are not, is God good? Most of the time I ask the question, is he even real? Am I just making this whole thing up? Is this all just in my mind because I grew up in Texas? I wonder. And thankfully God is kind to often not let those thoughts linger and to, to cast them away and replace them with truth. That's often my struggle. And of all the times I have doubted, there was one time in particular where I was done with faith. I was done with faith. I mean, I've had several really good friends over the years who didn't believe in Jesus. And one in particular, he was a guy who was a pretty staunch atheist, agnostic type. And we actually, um, we worked together uh, at, a, at a Christian school and how we got hired is a totally different conversation. Um, but we'd have all these conversations about theology and philosophy and faith. And I remember working at this, this Christian school when I first got out of college. I mean, he's one of those guys that I genuinely enjoyed hanging out with him more than any other Christian that I met there. Like, cause he was intelligent and thoughtful and genuine and compassionate and crass and funny. He was my kind of guy. Like I was, I'm for this guy. And we were genuinely friends. 
And one night we had gotten into um, another discussion slash like verbal fencing match about faith. And, and he, he, he presented to me a proposition that absolutely shook my faith to the core. He said, Tyler, listen, listen, we've been talking about this for a long time. I would believe if God would just show up. He said, Tyler, I would actually believe if God would just show up here right now, make himself very plain to me, I'd believe. If he would just write it in the sky so there's no way I could deny it, and even if I didn't believe, then it's totally on me for not accepting him. But he said, if, you're, if you really think God wants me to know him, why does he make it so difficult? Why does he make it hidden in some obscure Jewish rabbi thousands of years ago. And he said this statement, he said, Tyler, I'm not the problem, your God is. And he said that to me, and I don't think I had a response. I think I was genuinely speechless, which is a lot for me. Um, I had nothing to say. I remember vividly, still right now, I can picture my mind driving home that night. I was furious. I was furious and my eyes were full of tears because I remember thinking to myself, done, done. I remember thinking to myself as I'm driving home, everything I thought was true, I've had these secret doubts for a long time, I'm finally just coming around to accept them. Because I remember thinking, God, it is not a difficult request. God, all he's asking is for you to make yourself plain and you refuse to answer the most simple thing. He's not asking you to cure disease. He's not asking you to do all these worldwide problems. All he's asking to show me clearly. I was done. I I remember getting home and telling my roommates at the time who were all believers and I remember telling them, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm recalling my wife, Lauren, who's my girlfriend at the time, told her the same thing. And when I told them, honestly, every one of them was speechless because I had always been the leader of it. If anyone had conviction, if we didn't know what to think, I would speak up. And yet here I am saying, that conviction, that confidence is gone. It's gone. In my personal crisis of faith, it showcases another aspect of doubt. The more personal the feeling of injustice, the more difficult time we have in overcoming the doubt. See, injustice as a concept, injustice as an idea, injustice out there happening to someone else is already difficult. Right? You, you, you read things online, you go to CNN and you see and you read and you think, how could that happen? And maybe for a moment you have this silent whisper of doubt, but because it's out there, you can kind of traverse it nicely and move on and not think about it. But when that injustice becomes a personal experience and it happens to you, it happens to your friend, to your spouse, to your child, to your parent, to your brother, to your sister, then all of a sudden those doubts begin to shout in your ear. You can't just 
push them away for very long. Because personal injustice, what it does, when we feel like this is not just, this is not fair, this is not right, it prompts doubt because we begin to ask the question, where is God? Where is he? I know what he said. I know he said he was good. How? How? That's where Asaph is. That's where we get so easily, and listen to me really clearly, if you take the claims of the Bible serious, and you're very honest about how hard and how much evil and suffering is in this life, I'm telling you right now, you're going to have doubts. If you don't have doubts, it's probably because you're not taking either of those two two things serious. And when those doubts come, don't try to stuff them. Don't think that the posture you're supposed to have as a Christian is, I don't ever doubt, I trust God. I don't know if you're being very honest. Or I don't know if you're looking at the world with compassionate eyes. And it's also not to say, oh, to really be spiritual is to always be in perpetual doubt. As if it honors God to say, I don't even know what's true anymore. No, Asaph says, I was at the bottom. But here's how I got out. And he's going to show us how do you get out of that. Look at verses 16 through 17. You're going to see we worship our way out. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. He's stuck in doubt until what? He goes into the sanctuary of God. All of his thinking, all of his wrestling, all of his agonizing, all of his contemplating, it had done nothing for his doubt. But he goes into the sanctuary and his, he couldn't will himself out of doubt and he realizes I have to worship my way out. So he goes into this place called the sanctuary of God. And what he's describing, it could be the temple, it could be the tabernacle, but what he's describing is the place where God has promised, he promised Israel, I will dwell here in a special way. God is everywhere all the time, but he's saying in this place, I'm going to reside in a special way. And the sanctuary was the place where Israel would come together and they would hear the word of God spoken to them. Remember, people in Israel, they don't have personal Bibles. If they wanna hear the word of God, they need to go to where the scrolls are. They needed to be read to them. They needed to be taught. So they would go in and hear the word of God spoken over them. They would go, and that's where they would sing praises to God, sing songs to God. And that's where they would go, and that's where the animals would be sacrificed. That's where they would see the cost of sin. They would go in, and they would worship. And what Asaph is saying is, I didn't need another argument. I didn't need another perspective. I needed an interaction with God himself. I needed to cast, cast all of my doubt before God and have him personally restore me. He said, it wasn't until I worshiped God that I was changed. And listen, that should give you incredible hope. Incredible hope for us because listen, it's not as if Asaph goes, I'm doubting God, where are you, where are you? And God gave him some sort of special revelation that no one had ever gotten before and he saw things no one ever saw. That's not what happened. It's not like God said, hey, I know you have issues. Come over here to the secret room, the spiritual VIP room and I'll give you access. 
No, the way God breathed fresh faith into him was through the everyday, ordinary practices of worship God had already installed. He didn't need a new vision. He needed to be back with the people of God in God's presence. He didn't need new truth. He needed to go back to the word of God and say, tell me again who you are. Tell me again what you've done. Tell me again what you said. Tell me again about your love. Tell me again. He needed to sing the same song he had sung thousands of times. He needed to see again, oh, that dove, that bull, that heifer, that ox, that's what sin cost. That's what it costs to keep me clean. He walked into the sanctuary defeated and doubting and he walked out with newfound perspective and faith. And so when he's in the sanctuary, there's something special about worship. And I don't just simply mean worship together on Sundays. There's something special about worshiping God that dissuades us from doubting. See, worship does three things in particular. You're gonna see this in the rest of the Psalm. Three things in particular to deal with your doubts and establish faith in you. Worship reminds you that God judges sin, that God's love is unbreakable, and that God himself is the better portion. Look look at verse 17. We're gonna see how worship reminded him God judges sin. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Worship of God, what it did, it prompted Asaph to get a bigger picture, a bigger picture of what happens to those who reject God. He zoomed out of his immediate circumstance and he remembered, he remembered there is not one moment of sin that goes goes unnoticed by God, not one. Not one moment where God's eyes are closed to our sin. And he says he thought about this reality of these people who he had been envious of. He thought about the reality that every single person he knew, including himself, would have to face their impending death. See, you and I don't like to think about death. We don't like to talk about death. It's a very taboo thing. Some of us don't, and some of us obsess over it. And what he's showing us is in, when used in the right way, death sobers us up spiritually. Our own death, the death of other people sobers us up. And I, I think about this every time I'm with anyone in our church who's dying. I did it recently when, when my grandfather passed away. When you see someone who's on their deathbed and you know the end is near, it's always a helpful, and the saints who've gone before us show us, it's always a helpful thing to consider for a moment, especially when you're young, to remember, oh yeah, they were young like me before. Oh yeah, there was a time when their knees didn't hurt and they weren't sick and life was vibrant and full and they never thought this day would come and yet here they are. And he's saying, being around God reminded me 
even the most vibrant, even the most wealthy, even the most, what seem like invincible human beings I know that don't know God, eventually they will all be brought low by death. Oh yes, God judges sin. But what's incredible about this psalm, it's worship of God does not just say God judges their sin. Like if your spirituality and your interaction with God only prompts you to think about other people's sin, then you haven't met with God. Because what's fascinating is it's not just that God judges their sin, he's saying God judges sin generally even in me. See, when you get around God, you can't help but notice your sinfulness. You can't help but notice the distance between the two of you. And Asaph begins to realize that in his doubt was his own sin. Look at verses 21 through 22 again. He said, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, so when I was doubting and I wasn't following, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So what he's saying is that at the bottom of his intellectual issues, at the bottom of his theological quandaries, at the bottom of his philosophical theories, all these things he had been talking about and thinking about and looking at, he's saying at the bottom of all of that was my own sin. At the bottom of all of that was my own sinful desire. How do we know that? He says, he says I was like a beast towards you, God. I was brutish and ignorant. What is he saying? He's saying, I wasn't this intellectual human being just on a quest for knowledge and truth. No, really, I was like an animal who just wanted certain cravings met. I just wanted my own sinful desires to be met. And we know this is true because when you remember verse three, Asaph said, the root of all of this was my envy. It was my envy. What he's saying, it's not that the lives of those who don't believe in God and have prosperity and flourishing and joy, it's not that their lives by themselves are an objective argument about how God is not good and can't be trusted, nor is he real. He's saying their lives were only unbearable to me because of my own envy. It was my envy that gave those doubts weight. It was my sinful desire for something that you weren't giving me that made me doubt. So instead, what he's realizing, instead, what he should have done is accuse himself of his envy and repent. Instead, he accused God through his doubt. And being in worship reminded him, oh yes, God judges sin. He never closes his eyes. Death will come, which is his, God, which is his judgment on our sin. And I can know that even my sin was part of it. So that's the first thing of worship. The second part of worship is that God also reminds him his love is unbreakable. Look at verse 22. He says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. He realized at the bottom of all my doubt was sin, and yet God never left me. Never, nevertheless, I'm always with you. He realizes I sinned, and God still loves me. God was there the entire time with mercy and grace. And when you look at those verses, notice who's doing all the work for the relationship. 
He says, God, you held my hand when I wanted to let go. God, you guided me with counsel when I was rejecting it. God, you promised to receive me into glory even as I threatened to leave. God held. God guided. God promised. He's saying God does not lose one of his people. Doesn't lose one. There's not one of his people that will be lost because his love for us is stronger than our doubts. When our hands let go, his hand stays tight. He says, you held my right hand. Worship makes him have a fresh experience of God's love. And third, worship reminded him that God himself is the superior portion. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How did he overcome envy? It wasn't just saying, I shouldn't want that, don't want stuff. I hate new cars, ugh, like that's not what he said. Right? That's not how you get rid of desires. God's people are not repressed people. They're people who have found something better. If I found something better, he's realizing oh wait, God's the greatest treasure I could have. It hit him that everything I'm after, everything they have, it can't do the thing that I need it to do. That even the best gifts in this life eventually lose their potency. Eventually they're found lacking, eventually they don't satisfy. And he even says, eventually my own body and my own passions betray me. I think I know what I want, and I didn't even want that thing when I got it. That's why he utters this profound phrase when he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my heart and the, my portion forever. I want you to hear this. God is the only treasure in this life. And the only relationship you can have that doesn't depend on you for any of its power and beauty and love and joy. It's the only thing. It's the only relationship that needs nothing from you to have joy in it. The only treasure that doesn't need anything from you to be beautiful. Because at your worst and at your weakest, God's strength is unfazed. His satisfaction is unmatched and his worth is incomparable. He remembers, that's right, that's right. There's nothing like God. And even when I break down and I'm faithless, he will prove himself superior. When you have doubts, don't deny and don't revel in them. Worship your way out. Worship your way out. Analyze, listen, be a thinking person. Analyze your doubts. Consider where they're coming from. Talk to Christian friends, talk to pastors, read books, listen to lectures and to seminars. But no, at the end of the day, the fundamental thing you're trying to solve in you, the doubt that you have, the disconnect you feel between your experience and God, is fundamentally a worship problem. And what's incredible is that for every single one of us, we have a superior sanctuary to Asaph. 
See, Asaph had a physical location, but our sanctuary no longer dwells in a place. Our sanctuary is no longer a physical location where God dwells. It's not in Jerusalem anywhere. It's not even in a semi-hot, sort of sweaty gym. It's not in a place at all. No, the new sanctuary where God's presence always resides is in the person and work of Jesus. It's in the faith in him that now, anywhere and everywhere, we can worship God. Anywhere and everywhere we have access to his presence through faith in Christ. That's why we gather together every Sunday, not because there's something special about this place or even us. It's that Jesus promised, where you gather, I'll be with you. And that's why tomorrow morning and every day of the week and every moment of your life, you can have a life that worships God. Why? Because Jesus is your sanctuary. He's where you meet God. And it's through worship of him where God establishes your faith. See, that's exactly how God established mine. I didn't know it at the time, but worship is how God established my faith when my foot had almost slipped. And the worship that I experienced was not on a Sunday. It was actually in my bedroom on a weeknight. So I'm on the phone to finish that story. I'm on the phone with my girlfriend, Lauren. And I can just hear her crying on the other end. She's just crying because I just told her, I'm done. I'm done. And as she's crying, I remember thinking, I remember feeling just like a human desire of like, I'd love to comfort her right now. I'd love to say, hey, you know what? It's fine. I'll be okay. I'll get some sleep. I remember having that desire, and I remember thinking, I can't say that. I can't tell her it's going to be fine, that I'm going to believe, because I don't. And then she said something. She asked me a question. She said, who did you talk to tonight? Because all I told her was, hey, babe, how you doing? I don't believe in God anymore. Like, that's all I had said. <laughs> that's kind of, I led with that. So she's crying and she's so sad to hear all this. And she goes, who did you talk to tonight? And when she said that, at, at the time, listen, at the time I did not know this was God doing this. I know now, but at the time I didn't. But as soon as she said, who did you talk to? God brought to mind, God brought to my mind the verse in Genesis 3 of one of the first things God said to Adam after Adam and Eve doubted and sinned against God. See, there, there's this really heartbreaking scene in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve doubt God, they sin and they hide. And it says, the Lord was walking in the cool of the evening and his first thing is, where are you? Adam, where are you? Adam walks out and Adam says, I was hiding. I was hiding because I was naked and ashamed. And then God says, who told you that? Who told you you were naked and ashamed? And I remember in that moment when I knew from that text in Genesis 3, I knew God was bringing that verse to mind to ask me the same question, Tyler, who told you? Like, who told you I couldn't be trusted? Who told you I wasn't good? 
Who told you I'd forgotten you? And really the question that text was pressing onto my heart was a question of worship. Who do you trust? Who has authority to say what's true and what's not true? Who truly knows where life is? Who do you worship? And I remember it hit me like a ton of bricks in that moment when I began to consider who had told me I shouldn't trust God. One of the best things you can do when you doubt is to doubt your doubts. As much as you're doubting the claims of God, doubt the claims of your doubt. And it hit me, I began to ask the question, well, who told me I shouldn't trust God? And I loved, and I do love the man I was talking to, my friend, but then I thought about his life and it was a train wreck. His life was full of dysfunction and pride. He had all sorts of issues he was clearly powerless to solve. He may be intellectual and prompt a good question, but clearly whatever he believes wasn't producing the life that he had talked about. And I began, and God began again, that, that was in my mind saying, but who told you you could trust God? Like who, who told you you could trust me? And I began to think, Jesus did. What is his life like? I began to think, well, this is the one who died for me. Oh yeah, the one who told me I could trust God is the one whose life was so strong, he rose from the dead for me. And then I began to consider, I mean, in that moment, in my bedroom, I began to think what my life was like before I knew the forgiveness and love of Jesus. And I, and I remember sitting there going, oh yeah, I remember what life was like, it was miserable. I had every gift you could have in this world, I had a great family, I had, we had wealth, we were pro- and I was miserable. And I remember life without Jesus was awful. And I remember the forgiveness and love I'd found in him, there was not a gift that was even close to the joy that brought me. And the question kept coming, no, who told you you could trust me? It's like, oh, the one who gave me contentment and peace and self-worth I had literally never found. And it began to hit me again and again, who told you? And the Jesus who told me was one who could be trusted. And I remember that, in that moment, I worshiped. In that moment, listen, I wasn't singing. My hands weren't raised. But as my eyes welled up with tears in that moment, my heart worshiped God and my doubts faded. It was worship that established my faith. Now listen, listen very clearly. If you're a skeptic in here and you are struggling with doubt, that didn't solve all my problems. It didn't answer all my questions. Really, that moment did not answer. I had a ton of questions left. But in that moment, God had won again the decisive battle for me. God had again established faith and had again shown up and reminded me, even when I'm letting go, he's holding tight. And at the time, I didn't have these words in mind. There's too much going on in my mind to have these words in mind, but Asaph captured perfectly what is true, what was true for me then, what's true for me now. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discern therein. That my flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But for me, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. In a secular age, your doubt is not vanquished and your faith is not established through might or by force. It's by God himself as you worship him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your presence that meets us through your word. Thank you that you are not scared away by our doubts and our flailing and our struggles and our sins. God, thank you that you're not scared away. Thank you that you have penned these things for us to show us how to deal with our doubts. God, would you help us be honest today about where we struggle to believe you? God, would you help us to be candid with you about where we're at? Because God, you already know. We're not hiding anything from you, you know. And God, help us to hope in you. Help us to hope in you when everything in our experience says he must not be true, you must not be good, you must not be real. God, give us faith to believe. God, help us doubt our doubts. Help us actually consider is the alternative we're banking on that much more sure? I thank you for Jesus, that he's this new sanctuary for us, that in him we always have your presence and that we're never far from you. God, in this secular age, make us a people of faith who are confident in you and trust you and show every person in this life and this age that you are the only one who's unshakable. You're the only foundation worth building upon. That you're the only one in the darkness who can save. Jesus, thank you that you're not scared away by us. Establish faith as we worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand. Let's sing together.